welcome, friends. My name is Jason Dooley, and I am the host of Thinking to Believe, a place where thinking is believing. We have been talking about the Kalam cosmological argument. This is now the 10th episode in the series where we've been taking a deep dive. Last episode, we looked at four objections that are raised against the scientific evidence for premise two of the Kalam, that the universe began to exist. And that wrapped up our discussion of the Big Bang and the scientific evidence for premise two of the Kalam. And then I began to examine the philosophical evidence for premise two. And I said that the philosophical evidence is actually, I believe, the stronger form of evidence for premise two of the Kalam. And we uh, began to look at the first argument that actual infinities are impossible, and I gave various analogies to demonstrate that actual infinities, if they existed, would lead to contradiction and to counterintuitive conclusions that we know could not be true in the real world. So actual infinities seem to be impossible. We demonstrated that through the rotations of Earth and Jupiter. We looked at the temporal distance to events, the fictional character Tristram Shandy, and then finally Hilbert's Hotel, and concluded with a quote from David Hilbert, the great mathematician, uh, which said that the infinite is nowhere to be found in reality, it neither exists in nature nor provides a legitimate basis for rational thought. The role that remains for the infinite to play is solely that of an idea. So we can think about it, we can imagine it, but it cannot be instantiated in reality. So today what we're going to do is look at the objections to premise two uh, of the argument that I made against the possibility of the infinite. And that premise two was, namely, that infinities are impossible. So I argued last episode for why that premise infinities are impossible is true. But now today we're going to look at objections that people would have to that premise or to the arguments I gave for that premise. And we'll follow that up with uh, an examination of the remaining two philosophical arguments for the finitude of the past. So let's jump into the objections to the premise that infinities are impossible. And this, of course, was the second premise from my first philosophical argument for the finitude of the past. All right. Objection number one. Infinite set theory shows that an actually infinite number of things can exist. Well, infinite set theory, as David Hilbert himself showed, is something that can exist as an idea, but it doesn't exist anywhere in reality. So the fact that mathematicians can use these mathematical devices does not imply that they are instantiable in the real world. You can do the the math on paper, but being able to work out a mathematical, a consistent mathematical theory on paper is very different from saying that this represents reality. Um, even though I do believe that there are many 
mathematical, you know, devices, calculations that do have real world application, that they do correspond to the real world. Not all math, mathematical devices and features do. Like imaginary numbers have no correlation with the real world. So math is not always ontologically significant. And an actual infinity, of course, we said would lead to illogical absurdities if you applied it to the real world. So again, going back to Hilbert's hotel, you know, in infinite set theory, you can't subtract one infinite from another. But in the real world of hotels, people are going to leave the hotel. They're going to have members be subtracted. So you can't prevent guests from leaving in the real world. And that's why infinite set theory has no application to the real world. Objection number two. Infinities exist everywhere in reality. We can always divide something infinitely. So no matter what you take, you could take a circle and you could, you know, look at the diameter of the circle and you could divide that in half and you could divide that in half and then that in half and that in half and just on and on and on out to infinity. That's the argument. So therefore there must be an infinity because we can always divide something an infinite number of times. The problem with this is it confuses a potential infinite with an actual infinite, because any number of divisions you perform will actually be a finite number. Even if you had been dividing that di- the diameter of the circle for a hundred billion years and had divided it a hundred and fifty million billion times, you would still have a finite number. You could never. Uh, get to infinity. And actually, that's a separate argument against the infinity, and I'll get to that here later on today. But I think also it confuses our mental ability to divide something in you know a near infinite number of times with physical reality, because physical reality cannot be divided an infinite number of times. In your mind, you can imagine doing so, but in reality... Things are made up of molecules and atoms and quarks, and you can only divide so far until eventually you get down to a length at which you've reached the fundamental elemental particles in the universe. You've reached a length, the the Planck length, where you can't go any smaller than that. So it's not true that you can divide anything in physical reality an infinite number of times. It, It would only be a finite number before eventually it cannot be divided anymore. All right, objection number three, isn't God said to be infinite? If infinities can't exist in the real world, well, then God can't exist in the real world either. That means God isn't real if infinities can't exist. This objection, I think, misunderstands how theists, or I should say what theists mean when they talk about God being infinite. First, infinity is not understood as an attribute of God. So we would say, for example, God has the attribute of omniscience. He has the attribute of um, omnipotence, and he is good and merciful. And there's many descriptions we can make of God. There are properties that belong to God. But infinity is not a distinct property. Rather, we talk about God being infinite as a way of referring to the fact that all of the attributes he does have are maximally excellent, meaning they're at their maximum capacity. So God's knowledge, he has all knowledge. He has infinite knowledge. 
Um, If we were going to be technical, it would not be appropriate to say that God's knowledge is infinite. It would be potentially infinite. Granted, he knows things that are uh, way beyond our ability to count, but it's still a finite number of things that he knows, no matter how large the number may be, no matter how incomprehensibly large it may be. It's still a finite number, but what we're saying is he has it to a maximum degree. That's what we mean when we talk about God being infinite. So that's different than the infinity of the mathematicians. Secondly, when we describe God as being infinite, we're not talking about a quantitative sense of infinity, like the mathematicians are. We're talking about it in a qualitative sense. So... All the logical absurdities involved with the quantitative infinity don't apply when you're using the word infinity to refer to something in a qualitative sense. All right, objection number four. Theists claim that God is omniscient. If God knows all things, then he must know an infinite number of propositions. If so, then infinities are possible. Well, as just noted for the third objection— There aren't an actually infinite number of things for God to know. There is an insane, (laughs) uh, uh, definite number of things that God knows, but it is still a finite number. But let's say, just for the sake of argument, that there were an infinite number of propositions for God to know. That would show that an infinity can actually exist in reality. But it would not demonstrate that time can be infinite in the past. And again, as I'm going to argue momentarily with uh, these other two philosophical arguments, if an infinity were to exist, it would have to be formed all at once. Something could be infinite if it came into being as an infinite, but you can never create an infinite by adding one thing to another. So God, if he had infinite knowledge, he, he could have that. There actually could be an infinite number of things for him to know because God doesn't come to know things sequentially. He's not learning over time. He doesn't add um, bits of datum to his knowledge over the course of history. God simply has the property of knowing all true propositions at once. So since he's existed for eternity, he would know all true propositions from eternity, and therefore he never grew in knowledge. He just had all knowledge at once. The infinity was present all at one time, and therefore God actually could have an infinite number of things he knows, and it would not violate this argument. But I don't think that's the case. I think there are a finite number of truths that God knows. He simply knows all the finite truths. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you'll always get the latest episodes. And help me spread the word by sharing your favorite episodes on social media, as well as rating this podcast and offering a short review on iTunes or wherever you access your podcasts. So that wraps up the objections to the first philosophical argument that infinities are impossible to be instantiated in the real world. Now let's go ahead and look at the second philosophical argument. This argument is that infinities cannot be created by adding one member to another over time. We might call this the philosophical argument against the infinitive based on the impossibility of creating an infinite by successive addition. That'd be a very long name, but that's the idea. 
when you think about something like numbers, numbers are indefinite. They're not infinite. They are potentially infinite, that there's no boundary. But at any given place that you would stop counting, you're always going to be at a finite number. That's why you could never count to infinity. No matter how long you're counting, you'll always be stopped at a finite number. You could always add more numbers to the count and you would still have a finite number. That's why counting to infinity is actually logically impossible. It would require that you complete an incompletable series of numbers. And of course, that's a contradiction. So you could never count to infinity. But the idea of why you can't count to infinity is because you can't get to an infinity by adding one number to the next, because you're always in the realm of the finite. So an infinite collection of things can't be created by successively adding one member to another, which means then that anything that has parts that was formed by successively adding one part to another could never be infinite. You could never have an infinite car because there are all these parts that have to be added in sequence. So the car has to be finite. Um, Infinities, if they exist at all, as I noted in response to the last objection we had looked at, they would have to be produced all at once in just one fell swoop. Because if you can't create an infinity by adding one thing to another, well, it is possible you could create one by just bringing the entire thing into existence at once. But you could never get to an infinity by adding one thing to another through successive addition. So how does this demonstrate the impossibility of an infinite past? Because the past didn't pop into existence as a whole. The past was formed by successively adding one moment to another, one event to another. And then we get the whole past by adding up successively each moment of time. So if you cannot form an actually infinite number of things through successive addition, and yet time is created, the past is created through adding one moment to another, then it follows that the past cannot be infinite. David Hume even noted, quote, an infinite number of real parts of time passing in succession appears so evident a contradiction that no man whose judgment is not corrupted would ever be able to admit of it. And to me, I think this is just a very, very powerful argument. If you can't get an infinite number of things by adding one finite number to another, then you would not be able to form an infinite past by adding one finite moment to another. All right, let's look at our third and final philosophical argument. This argument maintains that it is impossible to traverse an actual infinite. Imagine that you were tasked with climbing an infinite staircase. Would you ever be able to complete that? Would you ever reach the top of the staircase? No, you wouldn't, because no matter how long you had climbed, no matter how many steps you had traversed in your journey, there would always be an infinite number of steps for you still to climb. You would never reach the top. Or... Think of an infinite pit 
If you were pushed over the ledge into an infinite or bottomless pit, how long would it take you to reach the bottom? Well, it's bottomless. Therefore, you would never reach the bottom. It's infinite. No matter how long you were falling, no matter how many miles you had traversed down this pit, you would never reach the bottom because it's infinitely deep. So it's impossible to ever traverse or to to make your way across an actual infinite. And this reveals why it is impossible for the past to be eternal. Because if the universe was eternal, then that means that there was an infinite number of moments that happened prior to today. They all preceded this present moment. But how do we get to this present moment then? Because to arrive at the present moment, you would have to traverse, not you personally, but if there was a observer, the observer would have to traverse an infinite number of prior moments to get to today's moment. But you can't traverse an infinite number of moments, which the conclusion therefore would follow that you would never have arrived at the present So we could put this into a syllogistic form. We could say premise one, an actually infinite number of moments has no terminus. Premise two, today is the terminus of history. Conclusion, therefore, today was not preceded by an actually infinite number of moments. So if you can't arrive at the present by traversing an infinite past, then the present wouldn't be here. Yet it is here. Therefore, there have not been a, an infinite number of moments prior to today. Kirk Durston, he writes, the fatal flaw in invoking mathematical models and theorems that describe a universe with an infinite past, where time t actually proceeds from minus infinity toward plus infinity, is that when applied to reality, every second of that actual countable infinite series must have actually occurred before we get to this particular time t now. No matter how long we counted down from t minus infinity, there would always be an infinite number of seconds still to go before we got to t now. In other words, the problem with an eternal past is that there would always be an infinite number of seconds to actually elapse before any particular historical event could occur. So it would never, ever occur. The bottom line is that although we can construct all sorts of mathematical models of imaginary universes with an infinite past, they cannot work when applied to physical reality if we are to treat time as real. Now, J.L. Mackey, he was a prominent atheist, he objected to this argument on the grounds that an infinite can be divided into various segments. Each segment would be finite, And he says, you can traverse every finite segment. So if every finite segment is traversable, well, then therefore the whole infinite must be traversable. But this objection, I think, misses the point on multiple levels. The first mistake that Mackey makes uh, is that the issue is not being able to traverse any finite segment of an infinite. The issue is traversing the entire set. Second problem is that in in an infinite set, there would be an infinite number of segments, not a finite number. So it would be impossible to traverse an infinite number of segments in the same way that it's impossible to traverse the entire infinite. 
Third problem that Mackey runs into here is that he commits the fallacy of composition. This fallacy is committed whenever you attribute a property that belongs to a part of something and you attribute it to the whole of that something. So when an attribute that belongs to a part is attributed to the whole thing, that's the fallacy of composition. So this fallacy, a common way of, of illustrating it is you know, just because every tiny piece of an elephant is light in weight doesn't mean that the elephant itself is light in weight. What is true of each individual part of the elephant is not necessarily true of the entire. Now, this it's kind of a this is a mistake of parts and wholes. Now, the fallacy of composition is not always a fallacy. There are times where an attribute that applies to the part does apply to the whole. Speaking of an elephant, if every part of an elephant is gray, then it does logically follow that the entire elephant is gray. But it just doesn't always follow that a property that can be attributed to a part of the whole necessarily applies to the entire whole. And in this case, I think Mackey is guilty of committing the fallacy um, because... It's not true that just because a finite segment is traversable, that therefore uh, the entire infinite would be traversable. So there we have it. Um, We've looked at three philosophical arguments for the infinitude of the past. We said that infinities lead to contradictions and therefore infinities are impossible. We've said that uh, you cannot create an infinity by adding one member to another over time. So it's the argument against the possibility of infinities because of successive addition. And then the third argument was that it's impossible to traverse an actual infinite. So I think that the philosophical evidence that we've looked at strongly supports premise two of the Kalam that the universe began to exist. When we couple this with the scientific evidence that we've already explored. I think the truth of premise two of the Kalam is firmly established. So we've now reviewed all the evidence and objections to premise one. We looked at all the evidence and the objections to premise two, and we found that the evidence was good, the objections were poor, and therefore the truth of these premises stand, that everything that which begins to exist has an external cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has an external cause. That means that the Kalam cosmological argument succeeds. Both premises are true, the conclusion follows logically, we have now determined that the universe did have a cause. All right, next time we will look at the conclusion that the universe has a cause, and we will try to draw out some logical inferences about the nature of that cause. And that is how we get to the conclusion that God caused the universe from the Kalam cosmological argument. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.